Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-host, Anastasia. Our Starseed Quest to Arkansas will take place on Pleiadian lineup November 17th through the 20th. Information concerning Earth-to-Sky assignments and holding the way will be highlighted and distributed during the Pleiadian alignment in November. These are not the only dates, as other celestial harmonics have been designed for future evolutionary codes of remembrance to be released. These cosmic dates have been designed for those who remember. Each time that starseeds come to the quest, they are always monitored by our galactic family aboard the starship Bethlehem. When they monitor your cosmic bank account, then your soul maturity records reveal what cosmic opportunities would be available to you in the future. Because of your intent, alignment, and commitment to starseed work on the planet, that's why you're invited to the Starseed Quest this November 17th through the 20th. It's a soul family reunion, and all you need is one galactic marking on your chart to be eligible. If you feel the call to come but don't know if you have the required markings, just send an email to crystals at starseedhotline.com and we'll take a quick look. And if you have a friend who feels the call as well and wants to attend with you, we can check their chart for those markings. Tonight, our presentation is from Lavendar's Vault, which is where she has protected her journals on ET experiences throughout her life. They taught her through demonstrations of how it works so she would have to live with the information rather than just hear it. If you have heard our featured episode, Crack Between the Worlds, you'll have a better understanding of this compilation of her galactic demonstrations as she will refer to things released on our show in that episode. Things happened that tested her sanity as well as her commitment to the light information and living between dimensions. Lavendar has been a pioneer in helping people understand the way they work how the energy is tracked, and how to stay attuned to it. You can read more of her chronicles on our website, starseedhotline.com forward slash vault. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest and hope that you won't hear elsewhere. And if you'd like to show your support for our show, please just click follow on our show page, and our main website is starseedhotline.com. The Stage 1 Starseed Confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you're going to get a window of 10 hours of great manifestation power. You can find out exactly when it happens by requesting your solar return timing. And uh, you order that about a week or two before your birthday. But if you want a reading of that chart, please order the Stage 2 live session about two months before your birthday. So first up tonight, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her very uplifting Starseed News. (laughs) 
Well, good evening, everybody. Hello, Ariel. Great to be Hello. with you tonight. It is becoming autumnal outside. Where I live, the leaves are falling. It's crunchy when you go outside. Everything's turning golden and red. It's very beautiful. I kind of mourn the passing of summer, but oh, autumn is a special time of year. And so here we go. It's part of the seasons of life, and it is very beautiful here where I am. Well, I want you to get ready for the solar eclipse when moon and sun form the perfect line with ring with the earth, excuse me, in a ring of fire. The 2023 solar eclipse is passing over the United States this year, giving millions of Americans in the Northwest a chance to glimpse this ring of fire. That's the phrase for a kind of eclipse known as the annular eclipse, where the moon passes in front of the sun but leaves space for a small ring of light to be seen. The annular solar eclipse will occur October 14th this year um, uh, at uh, 15.03 uh, Universal Time. I'm sorry, I don't know what time that is. We'll have to look it up. That's anyway, it's England you, time. You'll find it. Yeah, I, right. Oh, thank you, Ariel. Great. Well, you guys can check that out. October 20, uh, 14th at uh, 15.03 UTC. So we'll find out what that is. Uh, it, it will uh, cross the path of totality which is where earthlings can see the eclipse straight on, will pass through South and Central America before moving westward up through Texas, Nevada, California, and Oregon, though the eclipse can still be seen in the thousands of miles east and west of that line. So if you're in Georgia, you should be able to see it. In fact, all of the continental United States will have at least some visibility of the eclipse. But unfortunately, sadly for Europeans, the eclipse will be beyond their view. Now, while the night sky or the, excuse me, the day sky might be dim and the temperature drop, the only way to actually see the difference in the light of the sun during an eclipse is by wearing those special eclipse glasses or the old-timey 3D glasses from a movie theater. So don't look at the eclipse directly. It will be very damaging to your eyes. So there it is. Check that out, the, the 14th of October this year. That's just 11 days away. Well, something came up for sale something that you wouldn't expect would survive, a very rare piece of paper. In fact, it was a rare piece of American history that was auctioned last week, and it's very surprising that it would still exist after 150 years since it was printed. It was a pair of tickets for Ford's Theater the night President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Even more amazing, they were front-row balcony seats which would have given the theater goers with those tickets a clear view of the box where Lincoln was shot on April 14, 1865. The new owners of this very valuable and rare item paid more than a quarter of a million dollars for the artifacts, although the Boston-based auction company believed the tickets would fetch less than $100,000. They went actually for $262,500. The only other similarly date-stamped ticket stub is in the collection of Harvard University's Houghton Houghton Library. On this fateful night, Lincoln, the 16th President of the United States, reportedly ignored his psychic wife's misgivings about the theater outing to see the play, uh, which was named, uh, titled Our American Cousin, and he met his end at the hand of a stage actor, John Wilkes Booth, while he was at the, at the play. This, of course, was near the end of the American Civil War, and Lincoln's assassination was part of a larger conspiracy intended by Booth to revive the Confederacy uh, to, uh, by eliminating uh, the President of the United States. 
The president of the auction company said these historic tickets had belonged to the Forbes collection of America and historical documents, American and historical documents. He said, we know of only one other ticket used on April 14, 1865, bearing a seat assignment that exists, making these two tickets extremely valuable. If you ever collected antiques, and some of you might have, I certainly have, uh, paper products are plentiful. Um, usually they're worthless, but once in a while you find something that uh, you're very happy did not perish, and this is one of those things that you just can't hardly believe it survived. Well, this is worth smiling about. A company called Torgem Biopharma is a Japanese pharmaceutical startup, and guess what? It is set to start clinical trials, trials next year on the world's first drug to regrow teeth. Think about it. Well, researchers are very excited and hopeful that within the next 10 years, tooth regrowth medicine will be a choice alongside dentures, implants, and so on. You can choose to regrow your own teeth. That's just awesome. And in California, lawmakers have passed a bill to make it easier for consumers to delete their online personal data. This comes from the L.A. Times. It's called the Delete Act, and it allows consumers to have every data broker delete their personal information, like their addresses, what they purchased, in just one single request. No need to send notices to various parties and ask from different people, different companies to delete your data. One request, it all goes away. Now that's an act a piece of legislation that is truly in service to the public. I I congratulate them for that. Well, dog lovers everywhere are going to get a hoot out of this. Uh, There has been rampant nepotism and plenty of buying of votes in the town of Idlewide, California. That's right. Vote buying and nepotism. Nepotism being uh, uh, holding office among family members. The mayor, even, sometimes chews up his neckties. Seriously. Well, we think human politics matter. Well, we actually are talking about human politics, sort of. But in this case, only pets were allowed on the ballot, which is why the elected leader in this unincorporated community near Palm Springs is a one-year-old golden retriever named Mayor Max III, who chewed his way through three ties during his first month in office. His predecessors... <laughs> were the late Mayor Max II and Mayor Max I, both who were golden retrievers from the same family. It all started when Phyllis Muller and her husband moved to Idlewild in 2011. Since Idlewild is an unincorporated town, I used to live in one of those, it had no mayor or elected officials. And soon after their arrival, the town's animal rescue center, called Animal Rescue Friends, announced that it would be holding Idlewild's first ever election. Well, this woman saw the timing as divine. She was sure if anything on this earth could ensure peace and happiness in the community, it was surely going to be a golden retriever. <laughs> so the town's first male election drew 14 dogs and two cat contenders. <laughs> the woman uh, campaigned hard for Max I, which was her golden retriever, and he won this election by a landslide Although the election initially aimed to serve a lighthearted fundraiser for the Animal Rescue Center, 
It cost a dollar to cast a vote, and the voters could cast as many as they wanted to. <laughs> Mueller and her husband chose to approach their dog's tenure in office with a serious commitment to doing some good, which is partly why they spent $20,000 on their votes. <laughs> she said, this is an opportunity to be the real mayor, mayor of Idlewild and do the real job, but without any politics, she told the Washington Post. Uh, he loves everybody unconditionally. It's nonpartisan. It's nonpolitical. I'm going with it. Well, Mayor Max I quickly became a local celebrity, making appearances at weddings, schools, hospitals, birthday parties, nursing homes. He had a unique charm connecting with people through eye contact, handshakes, and a charismatic tail wag. The same has been true of his descendants, Max II and Max III. Well, this lady is determined to keep the mayor's office uh, running like this for as long as she lives. She said, with the mayors, I want to remind people that there is good in this world. Every day, people do good things. These dogs here, they are living angels, and they love you with all their heart. <laughs> she uh -oh. said, people can't get enough of being with the dogs and getting pictures of them and petting them. It just makes the dogs very happy, which is the payback for doing it. Ah, it's one of my favorite stories of all time. Yeah. It's just great. Well, in a groundbreaking achievement, engineers from MIT and somewhere in China have designed a passive solar desalination system that converts seawater into drinkable water. Better yet, it's cheaper than tap water. For the very first time, it is possible for water produced by sunlight to be even cheaper than tap water. This opens up the possibility for solar desalination to address re real-world water shortage problems. The concept, which was articulated in a study published in a journal, harnesses the dual powers of the sun and the inherent properties of seawater, emulating the ocean's thermohaline circulation on a smaller scale, to evaporate water and leave the salt out of it. This new system surpasses all existing passive solar desalination prototypes in terms of water production rate and salt rejection rate. The device, if enlarged to roughly the size of a briefcase, could produce approximately six liters of drinking water per hour and exist, you know, survive for about a decade. The team envisions that a scaled-up device could provide the daily water needs of an average household and greatly benefit off-grid coastal communities with ready access to seawater and sunshine. And since only 3%, 3%, of the world's water is drinkable, easy access to desalinated water is likely and most certainly to become increasingly important. That is a tremendous development. Really awesome. Yeah. Well, garlic is healthy. Garlic is good for us. We know that. We've heard that from everywhere. Garlic is good for us. But garlic isn't exactly, well, it gives you bad breath. But now there's a solution. Scientists say the proteins present in whole milk plain yogurt serves to neutralize the smell and snuff out the sulfur-based compounds that cause the lingering smell from eating garlic. Garlic lovers rejoice. The researchers <laughs> feel confident in their findings and encourage garlic lovers to wolf down a yogurt for dessert after eating garlic bread or a chicken keef. 
the senior author of the study and a professor of food science and technology at Ohio State University, has previously investigated other foods to deduce whether they too can rid odors from the breath. Well, it's not news, but almost uh, uh, they've already found out that certain foods have already worked, like lettuce, apples, mint, and milk. But it's interesting to note that um, certain styles of cooking use a lot of garlic, like those in India and Near East. And um, those cultures also use yogurt, more so than cooking in the West. Well, the first author of the study, and uh, a person that works in a laboratory, placed equal amounts of raw garlic in glass bottles. Um, they saw that the sulfur-released volatiles were released in concentrations that you could smell and smell very strongly. They found out that yogurt all by itself, nothing else, reduced 99% of the odor-producing garlic volatiles. Well, now they say if you want to use this as a remedy, and they suggest that you do, they also suggest Greek yogurt because it has a higher protein value than whole milk plain yogurt and is the most effective way to rid yourself of garlic breath. So there you heard it here on Starseed News. I'll <laughs> bet that's news to most of us. So buy some uh, Greek yogurt and make a big, huge pot of spaghetti. And there you go. Garlic bread and spaghetti, and you're, you're covered. Well, good manners are, are very popular with most of us. And according to the World Values Survey, when British adults were asked to consider 12 qualities that children could be taught at home, and to pick five that are especially important, 12% of British adults chose obedience. Now that's down from 42% in 1990. Clearly, parents are putting less emphasis on obedience than they used to. The proportion of people choosing thrift also went way downhill, from 26% in 1990 to the teens. By contrast, 48% of people today chose hard work as a value to instill in your children, up from 29%. 37% today valued imagination, which is important. That's up from 18% in the past. And 53% selected independence, up from 42%. But, as in way back in 1990, good manners were selected by 85% of the parents who decided that that is the most valued quality to instill in your children. Good manners takes the uh, prize 85% value good manners as a good quality for your children. All right. Well, in the last three decades, humanity has made extraordinary strides in combating the threat of communicable disease. This is pretty remarkable. I didn't realize this. In 1990, which wasn't that long ago, diseases like malaria and tuberculosis uh, created a third of the global health burden. But by... Uh, 2019, just four years ago, that figure had fallen to around a sixth. Uh, overall, the number of healthy years of life lost due to infectious diseases has more than halved since 1990. So we are winning some wars in that area. Mm -hmm. I had no idea, really, that malaria was that threatening in 1990, but it was, or tuberculosis for that matter. 
Well, sheep seeking a refuge from a flood got a bad case of the munchies <laughs> after breaking into a greenhouse filled with medical-grade cannabis. Uh, marijuana. <laughs> the, her- the herd was fleeing floodwaters in the Greek region of Thessaly after Storm Daniel swept over the Mediterranean. But they appeared to have found greener pastures in the legal cannabis farm. After breaking in, the hungry animals devoured more than 600 pounds of the green stuff. The sheep were jumping higher than goats, which never happens, (laughs) said the shepherd. Uh, My sheep are higher than kites, and they ate a lot of money in cannabis. That was a pretty expensive dinner there, but there it is. That's hilarious. Well, on the uh, female side of things, do you know that there is a woman in Mexico who happens to be a climate scientist and the former, excuse me, the former mayor of Mexico City is the Morena Party's presidential candidate in the upcoming 2024 election. Um, this means that barring any upsets, upsets by a third-party candidate, Mexico is going to elect a woman president shattering the, the glass ceiling in a very, very patriarchal country. The further good news is that both candidates are likely to pivot the country towards a much greener future. Women have made strides, huge strides, in Mexico's political arena in recent years, making up nearly half of the legislature since 2021. A woman is currently Chief Justice of the Mexican Supreme Court. Now, that is really pretty astonishing. That is yeah. indeed a very patriarchal country. So consciousness is shifting somewhere, and there's the proof. Well, Brazil's Supreme Court has rejected efforts to restrict Native people's rights to reservations on their ancestral lands. The Supreme Court has ruled in favor of restoring territory to the Zolkling people from which they had been evicted. The ruling sets a precedent for hundreds of indigenous land claims and is expected to have widespread consequence for indigenous land rights. The decision was met with celebration and tears of joy by members of indigenous groups all across Brazil. That has been an ongoing fight for a long time, and it is a wonderful bit of news. You know, in every area of life, we see these really significant shifts and changes and actual literal manifestations of a greater and better consciousness, higher awareness, um, justice, uh, responsibility for our environment, responsibility towards each other, kindness, humor, um, valuing, really valuing uh, things like manners and children and let's have some manners for adults along with tremendous breakthroughs in science. It's, it's just amazing. So I have a quote to leave you with. I, I, Albert Einstein was really a metaphysician. He really was. He was a mystic. He said, Imagination is more than knowledge. It's more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. And for starseeds, wow. that doesn't take much to think about that. It is with our imaginations that we dream, and when we dream, we bring about new states of being. 
We draw from that undifferentiated potential of energy, which is waiting for us to take it, use it, and make something with it, create new things and new beginnings. So there it is. It's all waiting for us. Use your imagination. Change the world. Encircle the world. From my heart to each one of you, I love all of you. You have a beautiful two weeks, and uh, I'll see you again next time. Ariel, thank you for having me on tonight. Oh, sure. Thank you so much. (laughs) Great stories. I'm thinking about that dog mayor. (laughs) Isn't that adorable? Yes, that is And I wish I could, so often I wish I could share you the photographs. It's a great-looking dog, as you might imagine. But goodness sakes. You know, wow. All true stories. And it's very inspiring. Dogs yeah. are the well, best. I thought great. it was it, funny that I don't know how many votes the cats got, but between <laughs> you and me, I think the dog should have been a landslide all the way around. Who put cats? Oh, I'm sorry, cat lovers. I better be quiet before I get in trouble. All right, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Okay. See you later. Anastasia. Thanks so much. Good night. Bye bye. Okay. Well, now we have our feature for this this evening, Galactic Demonstrations from Lavendar's Vault. All through that period in Las Vegas, I guess that was from 75 to 79, I had all these ET experiences. One of their favorite teaching tools was to bring this orange ball and let it run on the floor, traveling from room to room was this little orange ball of light. If I would have company or take somebody home with me, it would just scare the bejesus out of them. Also, I had a TV that would come on even when it was not plugged into the wall. It would just come on by itself. A lot of my friends witnessed this. There was a continual E.T. trickster fun stuff that was happening around the house all those years in Vegas. If the things that were happening to me in Vegas weren't enough, There was the Lake Mead experience. Oh, this was a big one. There were these beings standing and walking on water. They frolicked in the sunshine during their Jesus thing while several of us watched in amazement. My artist friend, George Taylor, painted a picture of this event, which still hangs in my office today. By the way, I've been trying to find George Taylor, who used to be the photographer for the Cashman Brothers in Vegas. If anyone knows how to find him, please contact me. I have run out of leads trying to find him. I can say without hesitation that 1977 was really the big ET year for me. There were lots of extraterrestrial demonstrations. I've already mentioned the orange ball, the unplugged television, and walking on water thing. The best and most dynamic was yet to come. It started when Belva Bloomer told me about a man named George Van Tassel. George was a UFO contee and a mechanical engineer who in 1958 commenced building the Integraton close to the desert town of Landers, California, just north of Desert Hot Springs. The Integraton is a dome-shaped structure constructed out of plywood and fiberglass and designed as a rejuvenation machine to recharge and rejuvenate people's cells. The Integraton was built following instructions provided by extraterrestrial visitors. The Integraton was also a dome, a time machine type of device that was partially built upon the theories of Nikolai Tesla. 
The Integraton was, however, not without its risk. According to George Theory, an overcharge could make a person spontaneously combust or even explode. It was built outside of Landers, California, in the desert at a place called Giant Rock. Belva and her husband Vernon took me there to meet George and Doris, his wife. Our friendship was instantaneous, and we had bondings that, well, can only happen through some type of soul connection. We got along famously. Belva, Vernon, and I made several trips to Giant Rock, I think about five, before George showed me the Integraton and told me how the space beings had come to him. I started really understanding about space beings through George. He was my first official teacher. Around the same time that I met George and Doris Van Tassel, I also met Frank Sinatra. We met at Caesar's Palace and we became very chummy. He had just finished a television movie called Contract on Cherry Street. This was Frank Sinatra's TV movie debate, an event as Frank, well, gloated and deemed worthy of a TV Guide cover story. Frank played a New York uh, detective, uh, deputy inspector called Frank Havonis, in charge of a special unit set up to battle organized crime. The murder of Havonis's partner, coupled with departmental restrictions and legalities, leads the inspector to organize a semi-vigilante group with three other like-minded officers. They murder an underworld honcho in hopes of triggering a mob war that will result in the dissemination of five mob leaders in the Big Apple. Old Blue Eyes was at his best. Anyway, Frank and I had horse racing in common, and he, and he made a lot of money off my horse racing tips, so I became a regular whenever he was in Vegas. Also, a client of mine, like who looked like Mara Farah, she was also in the mix and had a torrid sexual adventures with Frank that def definitely made me blush as she described their encounters. One day, I brought some of my Texas chili to Caesar's and he loved it so much that he invited me to go down to his house in Palm Springs to cook this recipe. He sent a jet plane to fly me down there. Now this was a trip that I was never going to forget and I journaled it after I got home. Today's the first time I've released this story except to a few personal friends. When I arrived at Frank's house, I found Gregory Peck chasing the maid and Spiro Agnew stoned a marijuana lying on a pillow in the corner as he couldn't get up, so he just smoked more than passed out was asleep the entire day. Frank had five TVs brought into the room for his five special friends that were there. What was so funny about his five special guests watching this movie on television was that the movie was actually about these five people that were sitting in the room. He had invited five mafia bosses to his house. Frank thought it would be really funny to show them how he was going to catch them and put them in jail. A big joke. Suddenly, it dawned on me what was happening, and I was just petrified. I thought, oh my God, what am I doing here? That will always be a highlight of my experience, seeing how much fun Frank had showing this movie, Contract on Cherry Street and serving Texas chili as these five mafia bosses watched themselves being chased by Frank playing his character as a detective.
The other part of the story is that my parents were visiting me at the time in Vegas when I got the call to fly down to Frank's. They were upset that I left, but Belva took care of them while I was gone. When I came back and told them about the five mafia bosses, my dad, who was also a district judge, said, Please don't tell anybody you did this. Bless his heart, the things I put this man through. Palm Springs, Palm Springs is really close to Giant Rock, so I was making a lot of trips down there in 1977. This was the same year that Frank's mother was killed in a plane crash, which I always thought was suspicious, and so did Frank. Around this time, he was also trying to make a decision about Manchurian Candidate, a movie that he'd made back in 1963, but was shelved after the Kennedy assassination, as he also owned the movie rights to this movie. Frank knew a lot about mind control, and we had many discussions about this, especially about his knowingness about the workings of the CIA and FBI, and of course the Bush connection. He told me things that I still don't talk about. His daughter Tina released another version of Manchurian Candidate and brought it up to speed with today's technology and showed the inner workings on mind control and how it played with politicians. This movie was out during the 2004 presidential campaign, and I got to witness firsthand how implants were put in place and how many agendas were controlled through this method. More about that later when I disclose other ET experiments with Washington, D.C. and the White House. During this time, as I was being told about extraterrestrials and space beings, I could feel there was a shift in consciousness happening to me. Even though I was on a quest to find out what happened to Jim, I wanted to know more and more. I thought if I could find out what happens after death, I'd have it all together. My life wasn't simple anymore. I started having very strange experiences, like I'd go to the race book at noon before I started my sessions, and I would place some bets. I had a girlfriend named Judy who worked with Belva as a manicurist. I called her and told her to meet me at the race book exactly at noon, and we would bet the horses before we went to work. I showed up, but she didn't, so I went ahead and placed my bets, and I left. Later that day, I called her and asked why. She was a no-show, and she said, I was there. Where were you? No, you weren't, I answered. This race book is a really small place. I mean, you could shoot a shotgun off and hit everyone in there, so I knew that we couldn't have missed each other. They, they say that the proof's in the pudding, well, whatever the hell that means, but Judy proved her point. She showed me her ticket, and our tickets had been stamped exactly one minute apart. I couldn't get over how one of us, or both of us, had, had been made invisible. This really started to bug me, and it confused me, as I couldn't put it together. This invisible no-show thing happened to me many times after that day. And every time it happened, you know what? I thought I was losing my mind. All of this high strangeness started happening to me, and I wasn't in control of any of it. As I just, well, I had to go with the galactic flow. Harvey Bevere was a galactic healer who was a friend of Belva's. He would come into town every six weeks, and I would work with him at Belva's beauty shop called The Lash. Belva and I would watch him work on people and perform healing miracles, one right after another. I didn't know it then, but he was activating starseed bloodlines in ways that I wouldn't discover until years later. 
I spent a lot of years with Harvey, but Belva is the one that has all the Harvey experiences under her belt, and I hope that she gets the opportunity to share these stories, as he was one of the most incredible beings that I ever knew or would ever know. When I was in his presence, I would experience missing time, knowing not or where I had been. This was a given. There was this one time when Harvey and I were driving east on Sahara, and a car coming from the west came right towards us, and we were suspended in the air, and the car seemed to go right through us, so the car would unexplainably be moved out of the way, and everybody was not the worst for it. All these experiences were very strange, and at the time, no real explanation behind them. But as the years passed, I began to understand that I was in training, and that I was being taught reality versus non-reality. Here is one of my favorite mind games. I'd be in a group of people talking about places that we'd been and things we'd done, and someone would say, well, you weren't there. Good old invisible trick again. I would think to myself, oh my God, how, how come I was invisible and no one saw me? Years later, I finally found out the answer. Oh my God, how come I was invisible and no one sees me? Well, that was the training for major assignments. When I had an important galactic assignment to accomplish, and which required being invisible, they would use this tool of invisibility. It worked every time. They used this tool on many assignments where I had to complete a certain task, and being invisible made it easy to carry out what I needed to achieve. And to thank all of this wonderful training and how to become invisible in a room, all started out that day at the race book betting on the bobtail nag. As I changed, my sessions changed. I no longer prepared a full astrological chart. I could write down my client's birth information, look at their planets, and I would key into their immediate need or happening. I could also feel a presence in the room with my clients and me. I knew that my energies were slowly shifting as evidence of more extraterrestrial communication started happening. And this started to become a problem, so I moved my office out of Belva's salon and began working from my duplex, which had a special office attached to the back. I needed more sacred space for my clients. When close encounters of the third kind came out, the premiere was in Las Vegas. George Van Tassel had been one of the technical advisors on that film. So he called and asked Belva, Vernon, and me to attend with him. They premiered the movie on the day that Mercury had gone rec retrograde. All right, here's a quick astrology lesson. For those of you who know about Mercury retrograde, then bear with me. For those who don't, then here's a short lesson about the stars. The word retrograde applies in astrology to the backward motion through the zodiac of a planet. An old encyclopedia of astrology describes this retrograde motion as the effect of a slow-moving train is viewed from another train traveling parallel to it but at a more rapid rate, wherein the slower train appears to be moving backwards. However, in the case of celestial bodies, it is not a matter of their actual speed or travel, but of the rate at which the change happens with their angular relationship. All the planets, except the Sun and Moon, have these retrograde periods, but Mercury is most famous of them because, well, probably because Mercury represents communication and people's abilities. 
While people speak of Mercury retrograde periods that screw up computers and television sets, and perhaps on a personal realm, even in their lives, Mercury rules communications, but more informal communications like writing, speaking, short shopping sprees, and other demanding endeavors. So while Mercury is retrograde, you just don't buy mechanical devices, don't give that party, be extra aware of what you say, what you interpret when chatting with or writing to friends. You cut back on errands, expect the check that will be in the mail longer than usual. Since the car is usually used for shopping and errands, don't be surprised if the battery wire loosens or the fan belt snaps just when you have to rush out for that one ingredient you forgot to buy. Let the let the cars rattle or that annoy, annoying noise go until Mercury goes direct. The best things to do when Mercury is retrograde, you know, is to meditate, contemplate, edit the book, poem, song, essay you've been writing, clean house, talk to your pet, listen to music, paint, or just catch up on your sleep. Enough of Mercury retrograde. Back to George Van Tassel, Doris, Belva, Vernon, and me, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind premiere in Las Vegas the days, of course, Mercury had gone retrograde. We were sitting in the theater, and I turned to George and said that Mercury had just gone retrograde, and I told him there's no telling what's going to happen when they start the film. It might break. Steven Spielberg was there with all the actors, so things were placed. This was a place for disaster. The lights dimmed and the film rolled. They had just started the movie when the film broke. He nudged me and said, yeah, Mercury's retrograde, and there's no telling who else is here, and we laughed. As it would happen, the film broke three more times at critical points in the movie. The codes in the film were awesome. I thought, wow, this is a message, especially when the ship came over and played those harmonic notes. George leaned over and said, this is just the beginning. I asked what he meant, and he said, this movie will launch the other movies that will come, and it wouldn't surprise me if you were going to be involved in it somehow. I said, oh yeah, sure. As it turned out, Steven Spielberg, all the actors, George, Doris, Belva, Vernon, and me, weren't the only ones at the movie premiere. It seemed that they were there also observing themselves in the movie. I later got to view this from the spacecraft as this was recorded and was shown to me as being a link to my future. They have a storehouse of recorded events of me and have shown these to me when my memory sometimes gets erased. This is an awesome occurrence. From the first moment that I met George, I noticed him studying me. He was around me twice. Before he really started warming up to me, he'd say little things to me and see how I'd react. This was the spiritual galactic foreplay to determine how much information I could handle. He would ask me a lot of questions about my belief systems. I sensed by his attitude toward me that information had been revealed to George about me. Once he was convinced who I was, he and Doris made many trips to Vegas to see me, and although it was in a social atmosphere, they both were training me. He would also find reasons for me to go to Giant Rock and sit for periods of time inside the rock. Almost every time I'd go there, I'd have missing time. Strange things would happen. It was though George knew something about me, but just hadn't told me yet. I returned to Giant Rock many times after that mysterious... February 7, 1977 trip. If you haven't heard the long version of Crack Between the Worlds episode, maybe you need to go back and listen to it so it'll be in context with the rest of this story. At least, you know, I was down at Giant Rock maybe 
or once a week for months. I was included in discussions about the Integraton. Then the government came and told George to stop allowing people to go inside. They actually had agents that stayed on top of a hill with binoculars monitoring George, Doris, and everyone that came to visit them. Everybody that showed up, well, they got on a list to be observed for later. I think that shutting down the Integraton was one of the reasons George decided to leave the planet. The people in the consciousness of 1977 couldn't accept what this machine was truly about. One of the things I remembered the most is the day George took me to Giant Rock and pointed at it and said, you know, one day Giant Rock is going to crack, and when it does, you're going to have to release this information. And I said, what information? And at that point, something came over him, and that's when I got the information. I'll discuss more of that later, or you can go back and hear that in Crack Between the Worlds. Things that were so beyond my comprehension, the truth about walk-ins, time travel, rejuvenation, cloning, just all of it. It was almost like he was on a speed dial. Then he would see when I was overloading, and we'd just walk for a while before continuing. I need to tell a story here, although it's out of order of things and events, but this is the place I need to tell it because it's very important to this story. I'll jump ahead a few years. In 1981, I was in direct contact with my spaceship Star of Bethlehem. Thurman Myers, the man I was with at the time, well, we left Las Vegas and we were on our way to New Mexico. I began hearing a communication from the ship. We were directed to stop and go by Sedona into Oak Creek Canyon. I was, to I was told to find a little cabin to rent because I needed a quiet place to write and work and continue these ET demonstrations. We were driving up and down this road looking for a place to rent when all of a sudden, in front of some cabins that were closed for the season, there stood George Van Tassel on the side of the road. He was just standing there grinning. Thurman saw him, and then I saw him, and I yelled, Well, that's George! George Van Tassel, turn around, now! He turned around, and of course George wasn't there anymore. But he had been standing in front of a sign of this place that said, Closed. I said, This is the place, we're going to rent it. I think the name of it was the Ch Chipmunk Inn or something like that. Thurman said, You're not going to rent this place, it's shut down. I told him that we had to find the owner and make a deal, which we did, and we rented the cabin for three months. We both had seen George, but what was so ironic about this is that it was 1981 and George had died in February of 78. During those months, I journaled many, many transmissions that I was receiving from the ship. What I came to find out from some of these galactic gems of wisdom is that since the very moment I was born, I've been monitored and I've been guided by the Star of Bethlehem, my ship. My whole life experience is and has been an experiment that I myself was part of planning before I was born. I was chosen for this experiment because of who I'd been and what I had become through my evolution. I simply had to walk the walk, talk the talk, and live right through it. And that's what I came to know. On New Year's Eve of 1978, Gina Bilodeau, Jeanette Browning, and I went to see a movie called The Turning Point with Shirley MacLaine and Anne Bancroft. 
I remembered seeing Shirley on the screen, and I felt like I knew her. It was like somebody was giving me signals about her. There was an extraordinary feeling I had, and after seeing her on screen, I started fla having flashes about her. These flashes were indications of her future metaphysical interest and concern about UFOs. The information that, that I was receiving was being directed from above. I was being prepared for the future of my association with her. Remember that she was part of the Rat Pack with Sinatra, as she was the female member. But I actually wouldn't get to meet her uh, in person until later in the early 80s. I'd like to refer now to a time that happened in Oklahoma City in September of 78. I decided to have some rebirthing sessions with a lady named Polly Estep. I had gone to the bookstore and picked up a book about Nostradamus. And I was waiting for her to show up. I was sitting on her doorstep, and I was thumbing through this book. And all of a sudden, I had this experience. About this time, Pope Paul VI had died, and they had appointed a new pope, John Paul I, sitting there. I just got tuned in, and I knew that this pope was going to be killed, and I got very agitated. I don't know if it had anything to do with Nostradamus or not, but when Polly showed up, I just couldn't have a session. I had to get in my car and just drive home. Within two days, Pope Paul I was dead. The official story of John Paul's sudden death, who served only 33 days as Pope, was caused by, they say, a common heart attack. However, a degree of uncertainty accompanied this diagnosis because there was never an autopsy performed. The discrepancies in the Vatican account of the events surrounding John Paul's death, its inaccurate statements about who found the body, what he'd been reading, mm -hmm. what he'd found in the vault, everything about it was suspicious. There were so many conspiracies going on at that time about the Vatican Bank and who owned the shares of money. Even section focused on the bizarre death of the Pope. The movie The Godfather Part Three featured a major plot line depicting the Vatican Bank involved in organized crime, with various intrigues resulting in the assassination of a pope, openly named in the movie as John Paul I. And there's so many theories about the CIA assassination attempt due to John Paul I being perceived as trying to improve ties with the Soviet Union and his removal of several pro-American clergy. We'll probably never know for sure whether or not Pope John Paul I was killed, but I tend to believe the information that I was receiving from the ship at the time. Things seemed to be accelerating for me in 1978. I met Thurman Myers, my new man, who I'd be with for 10 years. I took him to Giant Rock to meet Doris. As I had mentioned earlier, George had died in February, and after that trip I became very sick. My colon was messed up with polyps, and I was burned out and tired. I was hardly working at my business anymore. I did have three clients who worked at the MGM Grand Hotel and Casino. I kept seeing a fire at the MGM Grand and people dying. I told my three clients that if, I, if they didn't change jobs, they could die in a fire. They didn't listen, and when the fire happened, they died. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I quit. I was not doing readings anymore. You know, many years later... I was involved in a a product that we um, all went to Las Vegas to try to get put together through a company called Beyond Sea, and I got to meet 
uh, a man who had been in charge of um, the MGM and if he had made certain decisions that fire never would have happened. I actually got to work with him and and we talked about the fire and I helped him with the transmutation of his guilt. So that was many years later. So back to my trip to Sarasota, Florida. That's where I went to recover from my burnout. Thurman went to Indonesia and left me there in Sarasota by myself. My mother came to stay with me while he was gone and during her visit I started having incredible pains in my stomach area. She called an ambulance and I was rushed to the hospital where they thought that I had a kidney stone. I'd already been told, and not by doctors, but by them, <laughs> that I should not have sodium pentothal. When I told the doctors that I couldn't have sodium pentothal, they asked me why. And I said, because I'm a UFO contactee. They thought I was a nutcase. They wheeled me into the operating room where they were going to extract what they thought was a kidney stone. Ironically, one of the nurses in the operating room with me was the sister of my hairdresser. She told me later that when they administered the anesthesia, and she didn't know whether it was pentothal or not, that my heart stopped. She said that they were about to put the fibrillator paddle on me to revive me when a blue light filled the room and a voice said, Don't touch her. They started backing away as bizarreness had entered the room and everyone fled to huddle in the hall to regroup. When they returned, my heart had started beating again, and they proceeded to remove something they couldn't identify, as it was not a kidney stone. I'm sure now that it was an implant of some kind. When I woke up in recovery, there were these three men in black at the foot of my bed asking me questions. I later found out that this doctor had had an affair with a woman involved in UFO phenomena who was trying to get a half a million dollars out of him. It, sta it started to make more sense why he was acting this way when he told my mother back in the room that I needed psychiatric help. The doctor wrote these prescriptions and handed them to the nurse to call in. She gave the paper back to my mother afterwards, so I got to keep them to see exactly what they were. When I started taking the pills, they wigged me out. They were actually making me crazy. I got into a fight with my mother, who left in tears and flew home. But when she got home, she got her medical book out, read up on these drugs, and called me. She told me to stop taking the stuff. She read that when you take these drugs together, they do create psychotic episodes and you can go crazy. She saved my life from this demon doctor who was trying to kill me, or at least make me literally crazy. In December of 1979, Thurman asked me where I wanted to go for my birthday. And I told him that I wanted to go to Aruba. We went to Aruba where I enjoyed it very much. I would eventually live there for a while, but more on that later. By January of 1980, I was in Cripple Creek, Colorado, looking at an A-frame house that Thurman had bought for us. We still had the place in Sarasota, so I flew back and forth from Cripple Creek to Sarasota from time to time. I could only stay about three weeks at a time in Cripple Creek because of the altitude. I was in Sarasota when my father decided to come to visit. I was driving uh, to the airport to pick him up in my Lincoln convertible. I was crossing the Sarasota Bridge when I saw a single cloud in the sky. About the time I saw the cloud, lightning came out of it and struck the bridge. It bounced off the bridge and hit me in the car. I was driving this Lincoln convertible with the top down. Anyway, I stopped the car 
and heard the man behind me slap on his brakes, and I heard the sound of cars running into each other, one after another. They didn't hit me, but I was sitting behind the wheel with my fingers clamped on the steering wheel. The man, who was behind me, ran up to my car, asked if I wanted to go to the hospital, and I said, Oh, no, I have to pick up my daddy from the airport. I have to see my daddy. I just gunned the car speeded towards the airport, which was a couple of miles away. I remembered looking back in the rearview mirror, wondering what people were thinking and what were they going to tell the police when they arrived. I decided not to be there for any of it. When my dad got off the plane, he'd been drinking. I tried to explain to him what had happened to me, but he didn't care. He was totally unconcerned. All he wanted to know is if I had any girlfriends he could meet and to party with. Who was this man? I had never seen such behavior coming from him. I was glad to put him back on the plane after a week from Daddy from Hell. Thurman came back from Indonesia, and he started treating me really bad. I wondered what I was doing to deserve this terrible treatment. To counteract the treatment that I was receiving from Thurman, I decided I was going to help him. By helping him, I would help myself and do the things that I needed to accomplish. Besides, I had the ship with me and my Galactic Secret Service. We went through several experiences where he saw the kind of galactic powers that were standing and walking with me. He really snapped one day when we got on a train in Albuquerque. I didn't want to get on the train. I felt like that something really bad was going to happen. But he made me get on it anyway. We went to the club car, and he started drinking. Thurman got into a fight with the bartender who had been on this train for years. In fact, the bartender was on his way to Chicago, where he was actually retiring at the end of the trip. This was, of course, his last trip. Anyway, security had to come and put Thurman in, in our bunk, where I started undressing him. As I was taking his clothes off, I started hearing a voice that said, In the wheels! In the wheels! In the wheels! I thought, my God, I've got to get off this train, and I'm just going to leave Thurman on it. I'm getting off. I was so disgusted with him. I asked the conductor where the next stop was, and he told me that it was Dodge City, Kansas. When the train stopped, I had my bags in my hand ready to depart. As I stepped off the train, I heard this voice say, Get Thurman off the train. You can't leave him here. I said, I don't want him. And a voice said, Take him off the train. The, the voice kept yelling at me. So with the help of this energy, we dressed him and got him off the train. He was a very big man. So it was really, I don't know how I got him dressed and, and off the train. So there we were, standing at the station at midnight. Thurman was drunk, no cabs, no one around, and I didn't know where we were going to go. Then out of the blue, this man pulled up and asked if we needed a ride someplace, and I asked if he could take us to a motel. The man found us a motel, and we thanked him. I've often wondered who that man really was. The next morning when we got up, something something just said, Turn on that TV. And on the news was a story about the train that we'd been on crashing in Lawrence, Kansas, and killing all those people in the Pullman where we'd been sleeping. It was completely demolished. And the bartender? He was killed on his last shift. Thurman looked at me, and he snapped big time. I really didn't have much trouble with Thurman and his drinking after that. It was a turning point, because then 
I guess, well, he felt like he owed his life to me. For two years after that, though, a galactic female, an extraterrestrial energy, came and worked with him through me. There was another episode where a man tried to come into our hotel room with a knife. We were down in the Cayman Islands at the time. When I stood up, the knife flew out of his hand and scared him so bad that he ran out of the room. Thurman was sitting there and asked, How did I do that? I told him I didn't do it, that the beings with me must have knocked the knife away. So this was just another example of the Galactic Secret Service. Here's another example of Thurman not wanting to listen. I told him that we were not going to get on this particular airplane. We were in Florida, I think at Miami Airport. And he said, no, we're getting on this airplane. We argued back and forth. And as I refused to get on the flight, the argument, well, it just became a waste of breath and energy because the plane got grounded. The pilots said that they, they had never seen anything like it. There was fog inside the windshield. All these strange things that happened were actually about training Thurman and, stop, and stopping that dark lord crap that he was carrying with him. He was into power and control. You'll do what I tell you to do or else. Well, all that stopped. I was being monitored the whole time I was with Thurman because he could be dangerous with his you'll do what I tell you routine. He started calming down after several of these demonstrations, but it took some extreme examples to get him to pay attention. These demonstrations were so prolific that Thurman actually stopped drinking. He stayed sober the rest of the time that I was with him. Well, that was just a few of the galactic demonstrations that Lavendar has journaled and chronicled. And um, we want to thank you for listening. We will be back two weeks from tonight. And until then, keep gratitude in your heart and show compassion every day. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 